Hello, and welcome to Meandering with Myrn, a potpourri of podcast by me, veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. Join me as I ponder any and all things animal and human, what we know and what we don't, where we've been, where we are, and where we're headed. Evaluating and upgrading the human-animal physical, mental, and emotional environment first enhances problem-animal behavior resolution. The reason for this is simple. Regardless of the treatment and how good it may be in theory, it must be applied consistently as directed long enough to result in meaningful change. Any inconsistency will reinforce the more deeply entrenched problem behavior. In the case of serious behaviors, that may mean consistently reinforcing the new behaviors for months. Additionally, those established environmental issues that possess the greatest potential to sabotage even the best behavior programs aren't separate issues. They're more like tangled balls of multicolored string, separate but connected at the same time. Better to sort them out before beginning any behavioral program than have them bring the program to a screeching halt weeks later or even before it begins. Consequently, creating such a safe and secure environment for the animal with behavioral problems heads my list of basic changes. Doing so also benefits these animals and their owners as well as those who interact with them in other ways. Among these, The more predictable and secure the environment, the less likely these animals will display what most of us would consider negative behaviors. These may include aggression, separation anxiety, and marking with stool or urine, among others. Safe and secure environments also protect stressed animals from deliberate or unwitting reactions from others that could reinforce as problem behaviors and complicate our lives even more. Unfortunately, creating such a physically, mentally, and emotionally secure environment does require self-control and commitment to helping the animal. It also may take a lot more time and energy up front then jumping right into those 10 to 15 minute training sessions twice a day or giving the animal drugs. Doing so also may expose cracks in the human-animal bond foundation that the owner might prefer to keep hidden. It's the latter I want to address even though they seem to represent a minority in the human problem animal population. However, I have a sneaking suspicion that this population may be much larger than I think. Let's consider some examples. Mary knows that cleaning all the places her cat Desi marked with urine 
involves a lot more than a sniff test. Just the idea of finding all those locations, let alone thoroughly cleaning them, exhausts her. But what really bothers her is the idea of storing those clean drugs in furnishings to help Desi until he reliably uses the litter box. She also knows that placing opaque films on key windows that block out Desi's view of the free-roaming animals who trigger his marking also would reduce his stress. But Mary is what my mom used to call house-proud. Her home is her sanctuary. She carefully chose and placed every piece of furniture and accessory in it. It's where she displays all of her favorite belongings and she treasures what they mean or say about her. It's her sanctum sanctorum, her holy of holies. She can't imagine not having all of her stuff around her all the time even temporarily, even to help her cat. It's not that she doesn't love Desi or want to help him. She does. But being surrounded by her stuff carries a more potent emotional charge. Meanwhile, a common belief among some other people maintains that a well-exercised animal is a well-behaved one. This benefit supposedly occurs because exercise burns off all the excess energy that's causing the animal's problems. Comparable beliefs about dogs and cats also may exist when the animals display destructive behaviors when left home alone. Some of the folks who use this approach even evolve a certain circular logic to support their choice if experience makes it clear that the approach isn't working. They tell themselves that if they didn't put their animals outdoors to burn off that energy at will, their animals' problems would be worse than they are. When informed of the need to keep their animals confined to ensure the safety of other animals and people, as well as ensure a consistent response to the animal with the problem, well, let's just say this immediately throws the exercisers into a it-ain't-gonna-happen mode. This also is a human emotion-based problem not an animal behavior one. A less common example that occurs in an unstable human-animal emotional environment also involves animal restraint. These people have an abhorrence of imposing any kind of restraint on their animals, even for the most positive reasons even to ensure the animal's physical and behavioral well-being. Over the years, I've encountered a handful of dangerously aggressive dogs whose people refuse to use leashes, collars, or any form of restraint on their animals. And they insisted on allowing their animals to come and go as they pleased. 
As a group, these people had no desire for their dogs to terrorize others and were genuinely apologetic when it happened. They also would do anything to help their animals except restrain them in any way. In these three situations, it would be easy to align ourselves with Aristotle who attributed behaviors outside the norm to chemical imbalances in the brain. Just balance the brain chemicals and the fearful, marking, aggressive, or destructive animals wouldn't display the behaviors that owners and others found problematic. But it didn't happen because these particular owners refused to restrain their dogs in any way. Instead, they let their fearful animals roam freely where, lacking a reliable human reference point, the animals succumbed to stimulus overload and got into trouble. Understanding these problematic human-animal bonds takes us back to a recurrent theme. The use of objects or animals as symbols for human emotion. In Mary's case, all those furnishings, even with their scent of Desi's urine that perpetuated his problem, symbolized security to her. Likewise, just as assuming a wild animal team name may inspire some athletes to achieve the speed, stamina, and agility of the namesake animal, perhaps the well-exercised dog is a well-behaved dog mantra leads others to believe that repeating this will resolve their animal's serious behavioral problems too. But at least a few of those restraint-free, aggressive animals in my third example may symbolize something far more poignant. The fulfillment of a promise their owners made to themselves years previously during an unthinkable childhood filled with confinement and abuse. In these tragic situations, today's free-roaming dog becomes a symbol of surviving horrendous situations their owners were once powerless to change. Evaluating human-animal environments first can make resolving animal behavior problems easier. But like any other kind of environmental evaluation, we may encounter human emotional issues that could hinder our animal success during this process. Sometimes we may need the comfort and security created by the symbolism that connects those unresolved human issues and the animal's problem behaviors. But other times we may use helping our animals as a reason to address those unresolved human issues too. You've been listening to a podcast by veterinary ethologist Myrna Milani. For more podcasts, commentaries and books about animal behavior and the human-animal bond, and links to behavior and bond sites, check out my website at www.mmilani.com. For more specific information, feel free to email me at mm@mmilani.com. 
All rights related to the content of this podcast are retained by Myrna Milani. The background music, Molly on the Shore by Percy Granger, is used with permission from Katova Arts, www.katova.com.